1: send you a copy bam bitch went down and welcome back to horror queers we're talking vera Farmingo. we're talking another toronto tie-in and of course we're talking about killer children
2: i'm joe and i'm trace and i think you said vera farminga like like a finger and it's definitely farminga
1: Yeah, I'm going to go with Farminka.
2: Okay. That's what I'm going to say for this episode. I've heard people say Formiga, and I'm like, like a Formica? But that's not correct. But yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like a countertop. We shall uh, refer to her as countertop. <laughs> exactly. Um, I am Trace, uh, like I just said, uh, and we all have a, a wonderful guest today. So I'd like to introduce, uh, she is the VP of Development and Acquisitions at one and the writer of Deadly Dispatch at TV1, and you will also soon know her as the co-host of the Afro Horror Podcast. Please welcome Sade Sellers.
3: Hi everyone! Hi, <laughs> I'm so happy to be here.
2: Well, the we're happy to have you are here. here. Yes, because you actually have been listening to us for quite a while, so we're actually very happy to have.
1: I Dad have.
3: Here. I tracked you down on Twitter and begged to be on the show, and you finally relented <laughs> and gave okay, me the I best. You not just say
1: stalked. It's fine. <laughs> it's totally fine. I'll, I'll take I it.
3: I definitely stalked. Mm. Um, and my options were vast, and I picked Orphan, just so everyone knows. I picked this one.
2: No, so uh, listeners, um, for some behind-the-scenes info, yes, whenever we um, send out the things, well, I don't know if Joe does it this way, but when I send out the list of films to guests, yeah, we send them a calendar of um, basically all the openings we have and let them pick. And yes, Shade picked Orphan, (laughs) which I was a little surprised by.
3: I'm an orphan defender, and I'm here to defend its name. I will join
2: you in in defending this film. Now, I'm intrigued by that, Joe, because I looked at your Letterbox score yesterday, which maybe you raised that today. I
1: have not. Okay. Okay, fine. I think that it's a really interesting film that is worthy of a lot of attention, but I don't also think that that always makes it a great
2: film. Like, I think it's achieving both things simultaneously. Okay. Hmm. Well, I'll accept that, and we'll get into it, but before we really dive into this film, let's go over some technicalities. So, listeners, we are discussing Orphan, which was released on July 24th, 2009, which means this episode is dropping the week of its 10th anniversary!
3: Yes! (laughs) We
2: love an anniversary. (laughs) I do. We do, yes. And... That's great. And it was released by Warner Brothers, but important to note, it was produced by Dark Castle Entertainment. And Aww, rest I know. Rest Yeah. When did they do anything after this? I didn't look that up, but I used to love me some Dark Castle.
3: Dark oh, Castle yeah. was everything in the 90s. It yeah.
2: was amazing. It was basically saving horror's ass at the tail end of the century, right? Right. Before we got like remake fever, J-horror fever and mm-hmm. torture porn. Yeah.
3: You know, what? I think Joel Silva... The owner or the president, something of Dark Castle, he actually produced Gothica because I've been doing my horror research.
2: Mm -hmm. So that's also Dark Castle. Oh, is it? Yeah, it is. Well, no, because Dark Castle got started as um, remaking William Castle movies. That's why you have your House on Haunted Hill and you have your 13 Ghosts. But then they kind of ran out of them, right? Well, yeah, I mean, because I think the next one they did was Ghost Ship.
3: Amazing. Love that one. Yes.
2: I like parts of ghost ship <laughs> uh, is it the juliana
1: margulies parts no it was
2: the opening scene
1: because um, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, nobody likes the juliana
2: margulies parts well i like juliana margulies she's just kind of like a whatever in this movie in that movie but um i i, I, I grew up watching 13 ghosts on repeat with my sister yes. so i'm a big 13 ghost defender
3: Yes, me too.
2: <laughs> but Orphan, however, was made at the very <laughs> tail end of Dark Castle's reign. I think it was the it was released after House of Wax. I, think, I don't think there was anything in between that. But this movie does share the same director. So we are looking at a runtime of 123 oh. minutes, which in it's my it, it's, it's the biggest flaw of this movie. I didn't remember how long it was because I remember really liking this movie. And on my rewatch last night, I was struggling a little
1: bit. Yeah, when you messaged me and you were like, just a heads up, this is over two hours. I was like,
3: what? Why? Really? It's like, that I first had forgotten. act. Yeah, mm. it's the first act where they're building, they're really layering on the characters. You're just like, all right, that's enough.
2: I'll touch on this now. We'll we'll, we'll really dive into it after we go through like kind of more technicalities. But I I kind of appreciate, you are right, Shada, it is the first act. that That's where if you're going to cut something, that's where any horror movie would cut it. I kind of appreciated the character development. My problem was that Peter Sarsgaard's character is such a terrible fucking person that (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to know him anymore.
3: (laughs) Exactly.
1: Although, admittedly, he's in this less than I remember as well. I remember it being very much like a couple takes in this child and they have to figure it out together. And then when you watch it, you're like,
2: oh, no, this is basically the mom versus daughter show. Well, and the kids are actually in it a lot, too. The kids play a much bigger part than I remember them playing. And- Again, this is, I mean, this movie, what I respect about this movie is that it goes into some very dark places that I wouldn't expect.
3: And nope. we'll get into it, but that husband is just useless, but well.
2: Awful. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, made for a budget of $20 million, which I mean, that's, I think it's less than how I think House of Wax is a lot more because they have more special effects work. This is less of a special effects heavy film, but it opened at number four with $12.9 million dollars. The same week, you know, 10 years ago in 2009, and it ended up making $41.6 million uh, and then a worldwide gross uh, of $76.7 million. So it, it earned its money back. I don't know if I would because there's, you know, those weird like box office numbers and you're like, oh, you got to make like three or four times the budget to really account for marketing and publicity and blah, blah, blah. So it might have been a minor success. Yeah, I don't think it was a barn burner, but I think it did. Better.
1: Like, considering that opening to leg it out to 41 million is pretty, pretty good. Yeah. I mean, this film is also sold on, spoiler alert, the giant fucking twist. Like, right. everything about this film was marketed as don't spoil the twist, what is her secret, etc.
3: You'll so never that. guess her secret.
1: Yeah. Just like, what, a cosmetic company? Like... <laughs>
2: I don't gravitate towards killer kid horror. It's not one of my favorite subgenres, but you bet my ass was in that theater opening weekend because I wanted to know what was wrong with Esther.
3: Well, if you watch the trailer back, it's really awful. Like, I'm really? surprised. Yeah, I watched it back after watching the movie and the trailer is, it's god awful. So I'm really <laughs> surprised that I even went to see it in the theater.
2: <laughs> like, we were all such suckers back 10 years ago.
3: Yeah, 2009.
2: I mean, God apparently times. not a lot of us, because it was $12.9 million, but... Um, I
3: think that was
2: good
1: for horror, though. Like, I'd be interested... This is the kind of thing where I'm like, oh, maybe you should do some research, but I'd be interested to know what comparable opening weekends were for horror, because I
2: think, like, anything around the teens was probably considered okay. Well, maybe, but I, I mean, like, you know, this is 2009. Saw two is an '05 and opens with, yeah. like, almost $30 million. So, But this
1: film is so blatantly not part of what's happening in conventional horror at this point, right? Like, it's not J-horror, and it's not Saw. Yeah,
2: Mm. and it's not a remake. yeah,
1: And Um, it's
3: an original, and an original script.
2: It is, Mm -hmm. but it does borrow from a lot of um, horror tropes, which we'll we'll get into. Uh, So, uh, Reception, kind of middle of the road. I mean, it's not terrible. Rotten Tomatoes looking at 55%, with an audience score of 63, and Metacritic, a 42 out of 100, with, get this, a user score in Metacritic of 8.8 out of 10. That's got to be like
1: people rediscovering it after the fact and being like, oh, this movie is actually way better than I thought it
2: was. Maybe. Like, that's high. That's a really high score. I remember people really liking it when it came out. I mean, like people, like, like normal people, not like critics. Like, I mean, entertainment would give this like a D plus. It was insane. But I remember people liking it because the twist is kind of crazy. It is. It's that's it's why I definitely I shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, before we get to your plot summary, Joe, I do want to point out. So, oh, fuck. Okay, I meant to Google YouTube, like, pronunciate this, because <laughs> I did not look it up. But, Is it Young Colette Sarah? We can say that. We can say that. <laughs> he, it's Spanish, so maybe it's, like, how may. I don't know. Dear. We're we're gonna say Cole Sarah, that's just gonna be his name. But yes, he he got his debut with House of Wax, then did this, and then did a bunch of Liam Neeson movies like oh, Unknown fuck. and Nonstop, and then went back to horror with The Shallows, and then went back to Liam Neeson with The Commuter, and then and then is now doing Disney's adaptation of the Jungle Cruise ride with The Rock, and then we have a screenwriter in David Leslie Johnson who hasn't done a ton, but he has been a co-writer on wrath of the titans the conjuring 2 and aquaman um but he is writing conjuring 3 but on his lonesome for next year so Mm. i did think it was interesting too that the you're one
1: of the many fun trivia points this uh if you want a lot of trivia that's actually kind of trivia ish the imdb for this film is actually pretty decent Mm -hmm. apparently the script is one of the uh, films that was on the blacklist do you guys know what that
2: is
3: yeah, it's an amazing honor to be featured on The Blacklist.
2: So, Sharni, yeah. because you, you're an L.A. person. I'm sorry. You live in L.A. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm an Angelina. Well, no, I can't call myself that. I've only been here 10 years. and uh, You can't call yourself. In, no, they don't oh. count it
0: here. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: There's politics around this. So, for any yeah. listeners, though, because we do have some younger listeners who don't know, can you please tell them or tell us what The Blacklist is?
3: The Blacklist is an awesome resource for screenwriters, and especially unknown, unproduced screenwriters like my well formally myself brag um
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> it was uh, created by a black man which is awesome i can't remember his name right now i don't want to get it wrong right. but it's really a place for you to upload your scripts and then people can read them and they rate them on a scale of one to ten A seven and eight means it's really really good and, and studios and networks should take a look at it um so orphan was uploaded on the blacklist and it went around what they have their annual list which is called The Black List, um, of about 20 or so screenplays that basically got high high scores that uh, the industry should look at. So so take that, Orphan Haters. This was on The Black List. No,
2: I mean, good. I think the screenplay is solid. And there's actually... I have some notes in earlier drafts of the film that I pulled. Um, some stuff that was cut... There was stuff cut out of this that I'm like, oh, I would have liked to have seen that, actually. But, you know, but there's also stuff that was cut out of this where you're like, no... That that was a good decision. I'm gonna tell you right now. I watched the shocking alternate ending after I watched this yesterday, and it is hot garbage. Um, really? Yeah, go. it's real bad. And what? And I don't even think the one they went with is great. But <laughs> um, yeah, I think it make. I think narratively,
1: the ending of this film is probably the best that they could do.
2: Probably so. And I have one more little note before we go to your plot summary, Joe. But the composer of this is John Ottman, who. Also composed Lake Placid, which we just talked about recently. Jesus Christ. I know. And he also did the score, well, the rejected score for Halloween H2O and directed Urban Legends Final Cut.
3: Well, I will say, though, about all the people, the editor, cinematographer, director, there's a lot of horror love on this crew. Editor did Darkness Falls, you know, composer, John Ottoman, Halloween H2O. So it's kind of like a little mini camp for Horror creators.
2: You know, we've kind of learned this as we've as we've really kind of delved into the crew of films that we've been covering. That yeah, people like to stick together in the horror community, at least in the crews, because we've had so many recurring names pop up, uh, especially in the like late '90s, early 2000s.
3: Even the actors. Yeah, I mean, Skeleton Key, Conjuring, mm-hmm. uh, Amniville. Like, it's a pretty solid horror you know, list.
2: I would like to think that making a horror movie is very fun. And that now that it's not considered like a death sentence for your career to be in a horror movie. I mean, again, look at fucking Vera Farminga right here doing The Conjuring. That was a joke, by the way, because that's not her name. Farminga. (laughs) But, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, I I like, I think people come, I just think it's fun. I imagine it's very fun, but you never know. So, Joe, Mm -hmm. what is Orphan about?
1: Okay, as always, feel free to interject. I I think I used to be able to do this in like three paragraphs, and now it just becomes like two pages of plot synopsis, so... I think uh, though,
2: since we start interjecting,
1: it kind of works this out. This is true, yeah. I try to lay breadcrumbs for you to pick up as we go, so... Okay. <laughs> okay, here we go. So, Orphan. After an opening flashback nightmare in which Kate, Vera... Cornucopia relives
2: <laughs> the trauma of losing her third child, Jessica. She Wait, visits her therapist. I'm sorry. Already? I know. I, I'm already stopping you. So, um, <laughs> Shawnee, and if this is too personal, you can say, "Cut it out." Do you have children?
3: I do not have kids, and that's not personal at all. I do not want them.
2: Cool. (laughs) So babies, I I know. Babies. I I don't want children either. I mean, luckily, like I, I, you know, I'm gay. I can't accidentally have a kid. But I do not. My husband and I do not want kids. But I will say that watching this fucking nightmare opening, I, it was was rough. I forgot they show the fetus. It is terrifying.
3: That's the part I think that could have been cut as opening sequences go. It it doesn't really. fit with the Mm -hmm. rest of the film for me. I thought we were going in that kind of direction and then we didn't. So I don't really know where this opening scene manifested itself from. That's interesting. I think they could
1: have gone... They could have easily inferred that Jessica had been lost in some other way. Like, you probably could have opened this with her just in therapy and have them be like, so how are you handling the loss and these kinds of things? But I think this is one of those, okay, we need a punchy opening. So you
2: go with a big bloody nightmare sequence. Well, someone tweeted me because I... I tweeted that I was watching this and I mentioned the opening scene because I don't know if I agree with you Sade because I I actually do like the opening but I do agree that it is maybe uh, it feels slightly misleading for what you actually get yes absolutely um, but someone was like, I thought that was a nightmare sequence, and so I was shocked when it wasn't, and I was like, no, it is it a is. nightmare sequence.
3: No, it is, yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it is 100% a nightmare sequence. But it's like, yeah, it's like, but she did actually lose the baby. I, I mean, I guess I get that, but yeah.
3: But I'm sure they didn't present it to her on a silver platter, like, whoops, <laughs> sorry. But
2: I would believe that fucking Peter Sarsgaard was sitting there as she was losing the baby with the camera, like, hey, honey, what's going on?
1: Cause oh, he's oh a yeah, for sure. 100%. tool. What a tool yeah <laughs> okay continue okay. okay so she visits her therapist dr browning margo character martindale ac- <laughs> okay. character actress margo, margo martindale. martindale
3: she's a tool too the therapist but. She, is. she
1: is she is but i love character actress margo martindale yeah she's amazing this is another one of those incidents, similar again to Lake Placid, where you're like, why is this character in here and not being murdered?
3: Right. Yeah. Why are you in here so much? Why are you so important? Well, <laughs> she should
1: be coming to the house
2: and being like, hey bitch, you back in the sauce? And then just getting brutally murdered. <laughs> well, because they had to just kill the black nun played by CCH Powder. That, that's oh all God.
1: they oh, to yeah. do. Oh yeah,
3: I can't wait till we get there. I, time, I timed her death so I'm so excited.
1: <laughs> I mean, she actually got more than a scene, so I was like you go cch pounder
2: supposedly david leslie johnson the screenwriter wrote that part with cch pounder in mind now that was from imdb trivia loved her and i thought how can i honor her (laughs) i should (laughs) murder her she i'm gonna make her this nun you know what why don't you just make her the main character of the movie Honestly, yeah.
1: Right,
3: or Doctor Browning. I I yeah get that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, swap
1: out the roles. Make Margot Martindale play the yeah.
3: She'd make a great nun. Oh Oh, yeah, for sure,
1: hundred percent great nun. Okay, okay, we've made it two lines in. (laughs) (laughs) Fine. Okay, Uh, so she visits her therapist, Doctor Browning, Margot Martindale, to discuss her alcoholism as well as the possibility of adopting a child. After picking up her deaf daughter, Max, Ariana, no, Ariana Engineer, which is an interesting and also great name. Yeah. It soon becomes clear that Kate is both distracted and quick to anger. Her son, Daniel, Jimmy Bennett, is petulant, and her husband, John, Peter Sarsgaard, is aloof and hands-off when it comes to parenting.
2: I did want to say that Jimmy Bennett it has one of the weirdest-looking faces of any child actor I've ever seen in my life. He does. Aww. It's punchable. I find it highly punchable.
3: But he's... We need to be kind to Jimmy. Jimmy. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, well, he was making the rounds, though, in the late 2000s, because he, also, horror family, he was in the Amityville Horror Remake, and even though I think this is a terrible movie, but No, I, it's not. No, 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 wait, 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 the next one. <laughs> 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 I, I, I I do like the Amityville Horror Remake, actually, quite a bit, because I think they was... No,
3: I mean Poseidon. Poseidon, Poseidon oh, is oh, not a terrible oh, movie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, she is yes, coming is. in with the hot takes. <laughs> oh my god, no, no, no. Poseidon, I okay, I love the Poseidon Adventure, that remake... Is not
1: good. But Isn't that one another one where they just kill off all the people of color so that they can keep Richard Dreyfuss yes. alive as long as possible? Yes,
2: but, but but Richard Dreyfuss is playing a gay man. Uh,
3: but also you get to kill off Fergie. You get oh. to kill off Fergie. So. No,
2: kill off that Fergie kind of and Andre Brouwer. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, oh, girl, I mean, that movie is star-studded and, well, like the Poseidon adventure. Very much. I mean, fucking Amy Rossum before Shameless. Like
1: Freddie
3: Rodriguez.
2: Who dies very early.
3: Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: As he often did, I feel like, until, uh, what was it, Planet
2: Terror, where he actually
3: Planetary. gets a fucking starring yeah.
2: role. But, and I know, y'all, y'all will see that I have this as the big, bold thing on my notes for this, Jimmy Bennett, which I did not know this until I looked this up, he is the kid who accused Asia Argento of sexually harassing him.
0: Yeah,
1: I didn't. I. I mean, I knew that someone accused her of that. I didn't know who it was. And then when I saw that, I was like, oh, because I. I was actually going to make a joke because I had looked up his picture when I was doing the castles. I was like, oh, Jimmy got a little hot when he got older.
2: And then I read that and I was like, (laughs) well, (laughs) oh god, oh god, I need to take a shower. I want just a heads up. So, okay, in 2015, his ex-girlfriend, who was 17 when they dated, filed a a temporary restraining order against him, accusing him of stalking, statutory rape, and exploiting her for child pornography. Now, that was dismissed a month later. But then, in uh, 2017, that's when he made his accusations against Ajay Argento. When like, I guess he he claimed it happened in 2013. I know we're not going to go into this cuz it's not like a legal podcast, but I was just when I saw that it's I was not... I was sh- I was shocked, shocked that this is like that he was the kid. So, anyway, narrator, he was. Yeah.
1: Okay, we've made it through two paragraphs. I know. <laughs> so, that weekend they traveled to Sister Abigail's, CCH Pounder. Woo! Uh, They travel to her orphanage. It's not actually hers, but I couldn't be bothered to actually look up the name. (laughs) Where John is befriended by Esther, Isabel Furman, a withdrawn nine-year-old girl. They learn her sad story, that she is originally from Russia, and that her first family died in a house fire. And ominously, Sister Abigail describes her as a princess, and she is very particular when it comes to her attachment to her wrist and neck ribbons. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, three weeks later at the Coleman's palatial home, Esther and Daniel get off to a rough start while Grandma Barbara Rosemary Dunsmore, <laughs> another person who should, who have should been die killed in this movie <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, well, Grandma Barbara finds her precious as Esther settles in. She makes a school enemy in Brenda, Jamie Young. she kills a bird that Daniel shot with his paintball gun, and it is revealed that she has an unhealthy attachment to an old Bible. Things start to fall apart when Esther sees Kate and John having sex, and Kate worries about Esther's reaction, which is quite unusual.
2: At the park, John flirts with Wait, a woman. to be fair, they're fucking in the middle of the kitchen, doggy style.
3: No, yes. they're fucking everywhere in that house, and I'm like, <laughs> you guys have three kids.
1: Yes. I mean, I did say this house is fucking palatial. It is like house porn to the max, but yeah, like- I've always gotten the feeling. So I've seen this movie four times since it came out. Oh my. I'm convinced that John is like a secret voyeuristic perv and that he gets off on like having sex with her in different parts of the house when the kids could walk in. Oh,
3: that makes sense. Yeah, because there's no reason for it. I'm like, you got a shed, you got a car, you got you got office. a fucking tree
2: house come on
3: <laughs> right the tree
2: house but they but they pick the kitchen yeah like <laughs> which, which which is bitch,
1: all open there. it's all open spaces and like glass like literally there is nowhere to hide in that kitchen <laughs> <laughs> so dumb. right like
3: bitch you make our sandwiches on that counter you're disgusting <laughs> yeah
1: If only Grandma Barbara knew what was going on, she would be
2: shocked, I tell you.
1: She's
3: such a tool, too. She's She's
2: a tool, And honestly, everyone turns... Well, okay, sorry. We'll we'll get into it. Continue. Yeah. Okay. At the park, John flirts with a
1: woman, providing Esther with an opportunity to push Brenda off the slide and break her leg. Max becomes her confidant, covering for the incident and later reading Kate's lips when it appears that Sister Abigail is onto her. Which is true. Kate learns that Esther has been lying, prompting a fight about John's former infidelity. Sister Abigail reveals that Esther may be a bad seed, a fact that is then immediately confirmed when Esther brutally murders her with a hammer.
2: <laughs> I forgot that she has to hit her a couple more times. Like, I thought it was one one and done hit. Yeah, you think it's the one time on the road and then they're like dragging the body and then
1: you're like, oh no, she's going to Happy Hammer Town. Nice.
3: Yeah. I just like that that's what that immediately points it out that she's a bad seed. Like, no. Well, and I
2: i think I timestamped it. Uh, no, it, it's like, it's a little before the hour mark. And you're like, really yeah I mean, yeah
3: no it's it's 55 minutes and 54 seconds because i boom. paused it to say all right time of death for our black lady is no. 55 minutes 54 seconds
1: she almost weighed it 50 way 50 percent of the way through this movie
2: she
3: almost did. but
2: that's also the problem though is because you also now have another hour and seven minutes of this movie <laughs> yeah and like how many more people die
1: in between this and john Mm. Uh, it's a lot of like honestly this feels like a long con kind of like it's just a dance it's esther like
2: fucking people shit up but not doing anything so well th- that'll be we'll talk about the successfulness of the film because again when you're marketing the film as an evil kid film yeah. your audience is already ahead of your characters so we'll we'll get there
1: yeah okay after an incident involving dead baby jessica's roses I esther fractures her <laughs> i know i was like how can i say this politely and then i was like when have we ever been polite on this podcast i will say that i gasped at this part though i was very
2: taken aback yeah
1: so esther fractures her own wrist using a vice grip john blames kate which nearly causes her to break her own sobriety the next day esther nearly kills max in a car accident but dr browning and john blame Kate once again after Esther brings them the boozy evidence. That night Esther and Kate face off as Esther reveals Kate's addiction is responsible for Max's deafness after the little girl fell into the pond when Kate was having an alcoholic incident. This film is actually really good at doing things like, "Oh, you didn't know they had an
2: affair." This comes out at this point.
1: Oh, you didn't know yeah. she was responsible for Max. Oh, here
2: it's it very comes. natural without like you know stopping the film for an expository scene.
3: Yeah, because yeah.
2: usually these films are like they just well, they kind of hit you over the head with a hammer with it.
1: Yeah. No. No pause. For irony, it? irony,
3: okay. irony. Oh, sorry,
1: <laughs> sorry, you were making a.
3: Oh, that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> this is how you know that Trace is tuned out. <laughs> I I was listening, I just wasn't... I mean,
3: I was tuned in and I missed it, so... So, so there yeah. you go.
1: Our Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm, listeners, I hope you pity for me. So. <laughs> uh, okay, we're, we're almost there. Esther nearly burns Danny to death in the treehouse. At the hospital, Esther tries to then murder him again, prompting Kate to open-handed slap Esther in the face. Mm, yeah. With Kate sedated, because of course you can't hit your daughter in an open ER and not expected to get uh, put into restraints, Esther moves her plan into action. She steals Max's hearing aid, gets hoed up, and puts on some sexy, sexy (laughs) moves on John. Kate then receives a call from an Estonian psychiatric hospital and learns that Esther has a rare hormone disorder. Here's the twist, folks. She is actually a 33-year-old woman who has tried to seduce the fathers of all of her adopted families, and then she kills them and the families in fires whenever she doesn't get what she wants. <laughs> John then discovers Esther's violent and sexually pornographic black art paintings as Kate desperately makes her way
2: home. Um, They also allude to that in the... um. It was one of those ones where like, when the logo appears in the beginning, the Warner Brothers logo, and there's black paint. Yeah. I, I'm a sucker for an... What would you even call that? Like it's kind of th- like a tease, right? L- yeah, like like a, a, a team theme, like like an it, you know, like you see the balloon come out from behind the New Line logo or whatever. I love that. So I like that. Like that pays off at the end. Yeah, they have
1: a tendency to do it a lot with Universal films because they've got a globe that they can just transform into a mm-hmm. variety of different things. So Scott Pilgrim, but yeah, a bit. I like it. All right, bring it at home. Bring it at home. <laughs> Esther repeatedly stabs John, then goes after Max. Kate arrives, and she and Esther play cat and mouse until Kate eventually falls through the greenhouse onto her. The police arrive as the two women struggle atop the frozen lake. Max's terrible shot ends up sinking them, and despite several stab wounds, Kate ultimately prevails, kicking Esther in the face with the brilliant final line, I'm not your fucking mommy,
2: as Esther then sinks into the deep. So I think that took 15 minutes, um, which might be a record for us. No, no, no. That might be a record for us. But again, we're looking at a two hour and three minute movie. One comment before we dive into shit is that that I'm not your fucking mommy. I would like so much more if The Ring 2 didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. It's the exact same same closing line. Now granted, this is a better movie than The Ring 2. Uh, yeah. But... The fact that it exists already makes me, like, not as impressed with the ending. And then it also just cuts to black. Like, it's like she she gets out and there's no, like, coda of repercussions of, like, how this... Like, the father is dead.
3: Yes.
1: Those
2: kids are fucked.
3: But we're not really sad about that. No. No.
1: That's that's actually the thing that I like the most about this ending. Uh, Right. I mean, by this point, it's been two hours, so I'm pretty much ready to let go. But I also love the fact that this film is so women-fucking-centric that it's like, we told you that Max survived, and we told you that Kate survived— who knows whether that little fucking shit is going to wake up in the hospital or if he's got brain damage and John is just dead. And nobody
2: yeah. cares. We don't need, cause we know Danny's alive, but we don't see like no.
1: anything. Yeah.
3: but she, yeah, Cause she put that pillow over him.
2: Like he died. What, what? And then he they died, brought him yeah. back. Yeah. Like,
3: yeah. And they brought him back. So he's gotta be fucked up. So
2: I hope I like to think so. <laughs> I, I did feel a little robbed though. So I know that Peter Sarsgaard like, realizes. I'm sorry, did you say Sarsgard or Skarsgard? It's Sarsgard. guard No, it's Sar Oh my god.
3: <laughs> I think it's <laughs> No,
2: no, no, no it is not. Okay. There this is, is me doing a bit. It's Alexander Alexander Stellan and Bill Skarsgard. Peter Sarsgard, Sarsgard has no relation to them. Does he have a famous
1: father though? No. Like is he re- No. Okay. So he's just part of the Gyllenhaals, then, is what you're saying? Sure. Anyway, so married to Maggie. Oh, that's right. He is
3: married to Maggie. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh my god. In a
2: day. Honestly, after watching after our like Placid episode, I'm gonna have to start really paying attention to who's married to who because I think there were like three marriage revelations in that episode. So it's I true. Clearly, it clearly, was clearly like a marriage trap. That. We kept getting Trace. It was really funny. Uh, you too. Because yeah, whatever. Um, listeners, go back and listen to Lake Placid if you want to know what those were. So I wish that we had more time of him being like, oh fuck, I was wrong. My wife, who I've been fucking trolling for this entire movie. Was right.
3: No, oh, yeah. instant karma. It's what he deserves. Instant karma.
2: I, I
1: completely This is really agree.
3: frustrating as a woman. Yeah, she was a drunk. Yeah, her kid almost died by falling through the ice. But you cheated like 10 years ago and then just told her two years ago after they lost the baby. Like, you are now innocent.
2: That, okay, that, that reveal... There are revelations in this movie. That reveal <laughs> of, like, oh, yeah, he cheated on her ten years ago and, like, told her eight years after the fact. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, girl, why even bring it up at that point?
3: But how dare he judge her? Like, and the Audacity, and not believe her. First of all, like, if anyone shouldn't be believed, like, it's you. Yeah. Like, girl, she sounded just, like, fun. She just wanted to have some drinks, <laughs> hang out. Like, she had a rough year. I just...
2: I was actually perplexed by character actress Margot Martindale's uh, reluctance to believe her about things. Right. I get the husband because he's clearly, like, not happy in their marriage, and so he's looking for a way out. But I I was very perplexed by the therapist not wanting to, like, even give her the time of day.
3: Well, she wanted to sleep with the husband. Ooh,
2: juicy. (laughs) I never thought of that. (laughs) Like...
3: I mean, he's fine. Peter's, look, he is hot. He's he a is. hot dad. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. He I can definitely see the hassles, therapist. But... Oh, but it's good. It is.
1: I do think, to come back to you, Trace, uh, I think one of the reasons that she maybe doesn't trust her, it's interesting. There's a lot of things that you have to infer in this film because mm-hmm. they don't spell it out. And it is kind of like these nuggets are interspersed among all the like ridiculous, ostentatious things that Esther's doing. But... I've always gotten the impression that Kate has been going to Dr. Browning for a number of years. So maybe Dr.
2: Browning has seen her when she was doing the drinking. That's kind of the thing is that we don't get to see those things. And it's it's ironic because I'm saying I wish we could have seen more, which would have added to the runtime of this movie. But it's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's... is it? Oh, well,
3: well, look, I went to therapy today as I do every other week, and mm-hmm. my therapist actually dropped a little tidbit that all therapists are more crazy than their actual clients.
1: Oh, yeah. So I,
3: I think Margot is insane. Like, Dr. Browning is batshit crazy herself. <laughs> and, I
2: mean, she doesn't see through Esther's trappings. Like, she has one session exactly. with her. Exactly. She, and she's like, she's fine. She's a very nice, healthy girl. But oh, by the way, though, Kate, you're a bitch.
3: Right. Exactly.
2: I think you're meant to believe that Esther
1: has, like, she is so smart, like, she is such an adroit manipulator, as Kate calls her, that she can literally fool everybody. Like, in a way, the film is actually positioning Kate as the most damaged protagonist, but also the person who can see through everybody's bullshit.
3: It's the wine. (laughs)
1: For sure. <laughs> or it's like a, the brilliance that comes with not being on the wine after so long. That's
3: right. <laughs> the sobriety. Is, yeah. Yeah, she's got sobriety
1: like genius vision.
3: <laughs> she's a, an X-Men, basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah, she, oh my gosh. She's the Jean Grey of Orphan. <laughs> or the <laughs> Professor X of Orphan. <laughs>
3: But it's it's really frustrating because if that was my therapist, I'd be like, "Bitch, why am I paying you? Like, you're supposed to at least give me some constructive feedback." But it sounds she just blamed and blamed and blamed Kate, and I was like, it's "So easy."
2: I dropped this movie from a four out of five to a three out of five on this rewatch, and <laughs> oh. I know I, I still enjoy it. Mean, I love how trashy it is, but I was so frustrated with how the whole last hour of this movie is just people not believing Vera Farmiga. It's yeah, so it's frustrating. Gaslight the movie. It is, and I get that's the it point. Is. It's just it's hard to watch, right? It's so hard to watch, and it, but to a point where I was like, "There's no way." Like,
3: because, <laughs> oh yeah, no. after I, a little girl breaks her leg, a nun is dead. Your <laughs> you're, like your cabin thing catches on fire. Treehouse catches on fire. Like, what are y'all not seeing here?
2: Well, and I think that's what's so frustrating about the Peter our character, though, is that he he's such an infuriating character that I. I couldn't deal with it. I could not handle any scene that he was in to the point where when he's getting stabbed repeatedly in a very lengthy, prolonged death scene, my lots of stabs, I felt such a sense of catharsis (laughs) that I was just like, all right, chop his head off, chop his little prick off like you were going to do that little kid, do it. Honestly, yeah. this this is basically
1: a different take on Midsummer, right? Where I think we're actively meant to root for the demise of the male characters in this film. Like every time I watch it, I always think that he is terrible and Danny is terrible. Like the only other person, like I wish that Grandma Barbara also got murdered because I think she's also terrible. But
3: she is terrible, and she's his mother, right? She's said mother-in-law. She yeah. Oh, I thought it, you see. I don't know why
2: I thought it was her mother. But whenever she gives Esther the money to go for the soda machine when she's going to go kill the little boy. I'm yeah, like, you're just like, you're you such idiot. A dumb bitch. <laughs> but I do. I think we're meant to
1: cheer when he gets stabbed to death. Because at this point, like, I don't I don't care to have him realize that he's made a mistake because we've known he's been wrong
2: this whole time. I just love that moment of realization. Like, it, whether it's this movie or someone else, I want to see someone know that they're wrong
3: well wasn't he the one drinking when esther was hitting on him he kind of like had like a slur realization like oh she is batshit crazy <laughs>
1: <laughs> no wait, all of a sudden i've been drugged hmm. <laughs> What? wait was know. he drugged yeah was he
3: drugged or was he drinking
1: i thought he was just drunk he finished
2: a whole bottle of wine
1: oh i always inferred that he was drunk because that's why the camera actually gives us like the blurry point of view shot
2: well no i mean yeah he is drunk like you
3: just no, said, no, I,
1: I I think I've always thought that it was more than that.
3: And I thought he was because she had bought two bottles of wine and yeah. she poured one out, but she had one left. So I was like, you hypocrite, you went home and drank her bottle like she's coming back oh. for that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I would have been pissed off. But no, I mean, I I, I know what you're talking about. Joe. You're right there, there. It does have the wavy, like blurry vision effect. But I just thought that was the film just trying to be like, he's tanked, even though I, I have downed a bottle of wine and not.
3: Lightweight, Yeah, what's wrong with you? God, he sucks. <laughs> I, always,
1: I always took it to be part of her seduction technique. Like, that's how she gets the daddies into bed, is she drugs them, she gets all dolled up, and then she makes her
2: move. I did appreciate the tactful way that they showed her grabbing his penis. I'm sorry, did you say tactful or tactile? Tactful. <laughs> or both. I'm just gonna keep making this fucking joke until somebody laughs. <laughs> tactile is touching. I don't yes. get it. It's never mind. Move <laughs> <on>. <laughs> anyway, but no. But like, it, it, again, apparently that scene was originally written um a lot more graphically, but I like that they got. I think they got the point across very well without being like pedophilic. <laughs>
3: Well, how old was Isabel when she actually landed this role?
2: Oh, I looked it up. She's 12.
1: Yeah, she's, she's 12. She was 12? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Oh, I
3: thought she was 14. Oh, that's worse.
1: No, it's, it's she's w- so young and delivering
2: such a good performance.
1: No,
3: she's great. She is. She's
2: very, very good in this movie. And I, I'm still surprised. Apparently, um, when she says that, um, they fuck, like when she like says that to Vera Farmiga, Colette Sarah, Colette Sarah, basically said, oh, we're going to do it in two takes so you don't have to do this again. Because he, he like, didn't want her to have to like say repeatedly like, and i'm like but i bet you had her fucking hit cch pounder in the head like five thousand times
3: well i bet it changes right once you cast the actress and you're like oh this is a real 12 year old and we need to cut some stuff out <laughs> like she's an actually she's a kid
1: yeah well and they typically have strategies of how to film this so like when she's hitting cch pounder that's not her like she's probably not there that's why you don't like you oh. see her with the hammer and the blood and then you see the whack on the head, but it's probably not her. It's probably like a, like
2: a stunt double, the pigtails. It's
1: a it's an insert with like a second unit. Like she's not even on that set. Oh. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. They can't put children into these scenes. <laughs> that would fuck them up. Like apparently Max, <laughs> they they told uh, the actress who plays Max because she's quite young and apparently legitimately she, she is actually deaf. So yes, she take is. that, the quiet. Place. Um, wait, the wait. That girl was yeah. Deaf. That girl was deaf, Joe. Well, no, she got so much press for like, oh, John Krasinski cast like this uh, deaf actress, and you're like, yeah, it was. I thought you were throwing <laughs>
2: shade at this deaf actress. I, I was like, to Joe, <laughs> like she's deaf. She's really <laughs> deaf. fuck all these little deaf actresses. That's what I'm saying. No. <laughs> well, no, um, this girl. Um, and the only credit that I could find of her was she was in Resident Evil Retribution, which is one of the more fun Resident Evil sequels. But she plays Mila Yovich's deaf daughter in her virtual reality fantasy life. Oh, oh I was that mm-hmm. the one where she has all the clones of herself and they keep dying. No, that is the fourth one.
1: Sidebar, I also feel like I've asked you that question on this podcast before, and I don't know why it keeps coming
2: up. <laughs> the fifth one is, w- when I watched it, I really didn't like it, because it's a very... it's a, Basically, the whole movie is Alice and her friends are, like, kept in an underground facility, and they have to basically escape. But the the trailers made it look like it was a world-traveling thing, but it's actually different levels of countries in the underground facility.
3: <laughs> oh, gosh.
2: So it's, it's the most video-gamey of the movies, once you kind of accept it for what it is, it's one of the most fun. Okay, so I can accept that. Yeah, one, one day we might do that because I'm sure we can come up with some. Oh, you know why? Because Michelle Rodriguez comes back in that movie, so we can make up some kind of lesbian thing about it. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to this film, well, which really. Well, has Speaking no of which, though, yeah, what what is the
3: queer reference in this film? Is it the, uh, the guy who worked with Brian Singer?
2: <laughs> uh, right, uh, that was John. Amin. No, so so Joe, you you put on the thing. You said there's no queer element, but an outside threat to a nuclear family is that what it was mm-hmm. yeah so part
1: of it is that esther i mean i'm always hesitant to call people queer icons or like queer representations Ooh. but traditionally she's
2: kind of a campy bitch though so I she's mean, delightfully
1: campy and this film is pretty campy if you want to be honest but, it is um, I think just this idea that you're introducing a foreign element into, you know, this very, like, well-to-do white family with their two perfect children. Like, even Max. Like, I love that Max is this adorable scamp and, like, her disability is really, like, it's not a disability. Everyone in the family seems to handle it perfectly fine. But then you introduce this, you know, demonic entity bitch with her dark hair and her Russian name and and her know, weird
3: clothes and her
1: weird clothes and she just like like she's the queer little thing that ruins their perfect facade because okay so I've I've done an analysis of this film before with my other
2: writing partner I didn't know you had this secret love for orphan by the way I'm just <laughs> I'm a little shocked and when you said using this four times since it came out I was like Joe I'm, I'm the
1: most surprised of any of (laughs) us. I didn't think I liked it this much. No, I think one of the things that I really gravitate to is the fact that this film is like 60% a melodrama about a family just trying to keep their shit together. And then like 40% a bad seed movie about a little girl who just like comes in and tries to kill everybody.
3: Yeah, it's the, It's about the fragility of what a family is. That's that's when I write. That's usually my main theme. Families are very fragile ecosystems. Mm-hmm. And I love that this one really. I mean, they went through it. Right. They lost a kid. They yep. have a kid who has a disability. Mm-hmm. The uh, father cheated. Yeah. Yep. So and then they were already on the brink. Before Esther came in.
1: Yeah. Like she comes in and she just brings everything out. Like she ramps it up and says like, oh, there's a little crack there. How can I exploit it? But also oh, yeah. if it hadn't been there, there'd be nothing for her to work with. Like that's why she latches on to Peter Sarsgaard in that adoption agency. Like they gravitate towards each other and she's like, oh, I can make this work. It's not can just we like you're a talk about that daddy. real
3: quick though? Like she's by herself in a room and Peter, I mean John, what are you doing? Like all the kids are over here playing. That should have been a red flag from the from the start. Why is this little girl by herself?
2: I want to point out something. So this was removed from the film, but in earlier drafts of the film, they gave Esther more of a backstory. So it wasn't just oh she she's going after the men. So here we go, really quickly. So basically, she uh, she was molested by her father for years, starting when she was an infant, which. Okay. <laughs> Destroying any future chance of her having her own children. Her father later took another lover, telling Esther that because of her condition, she could never be a real woman. She murdered them both and was ultimately sent to the Sarn Institute, the mental institution. After escaping from there, she worked as a prostitute in Estonia for a while. When she was ar- Yeah. When she was arrested for this, she kept up the pretense of being a child to stay out of jail and was sent to an orphanage esther sees herself as trapped inside the body of a child and it disgusts her she wants to grow up and be a wife a mother and a lover what her father considered a real woman and tries to find love where she thought she once had it as a child with her new father
3: yeah wow
2: i would have liked that in this movie to be honest Uh, really that's dark that's really dark I feel like that's one of those...
1: Okay, so I took a creative writing class back in university, and I had this whole thing where I did character breakdowns of, like, this is their entire backstory and blah, blah, blah. And I remember I turned it in, and my writing professor basically said, take that front page with all the character work, rip it off, and if you can't find a way to integrate this into your story organically, like... It's just not gonna work. Like when you read mm-hmm. that, it it totally resonates. It sounds completely plausible, but at the same time, I can't imagine how they would do any of that unless they had a flashback. Like, flashbacks <laughs> or like what, Vera Farmiga, <laughs> like looking through files and being like, Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Like I just now Esther and the Moulin right? Rouge. Right.
3: Um <laughs> That, yeah, that's a lot of backstory I think it works great for Isabel for the actress I mean maybe yeah. not because she was yeah. 12 god <laughs> <Reducted>. you were raised as <laughs> a
1: baby Reducted. Reducted.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I I mean, we do have a little research montage where Kate's kind of like Sauron Institute, and she finds everything rather quickly. I'm like, why didn't the nuns find all of this rather quickly? Girl, she's been there so long. (laughs)
1: Fucking lazy nuns. They were like, oh, we heard Russia, and she's like, bitch, it's Estonia. It's It's a completely different country.
3: What I mean, I mean, honestly, though, if you. When you watch the movie back, you could see the look on Sister Abigail's face as they're first meeting Esther. She's kinda of like, Oh shit, no, not this one. But she still <laughs> lets them adopt she still lets them adopt her. And then she comes back, Oh, I was wrong about Esther. Like she knew. They all knew from the beginning something was definitely way off about this this chick. Yeah. Um and they did nothing. I think secretly cuz they wanted like I think it's like a race thing. No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no way. Wait, wait. No. This <laughs> little you, white child is evil. Let's get her the fuck out of here. By all means, if you want to ex- expand upon that, you are more than welcome to.
3: <laughs> it's just I mean like Maybe that's her form of reparations. Right. Just like, yeah, give it to them.
1: Oh, like, I, I see this perfect white couple and I'm just going to, yep. like, gift box you <laughs> this child who's going to fuck up your life.
3: I mean, yes, because it, it had to be a setup. Sister Abigail clearly, <laughs> on the look on her face was like, oh, shit, they really like her. All right. Well, she's all she did, gave them no warning, nothing. She sat them down. It was just like yeah, I mean, she's a loner, whatever, and then sent them on their way. Three weeks later, they got a child. Like, first of all, that never happens. Yeah,
2: it's the most expedited adoption ever. As we've discussed, there are more, like, there's a lot you have to infer from the movie based on, like, the bits of dialogue they give you. But I remember, okay, so, she has the miscarriage, she's going through therapy for alcoholism. A, would any therapist recommend, and would, would it be smart for any family to jump into adoption in the midst of all this turmoil they're going through? And I feel like that it happens really quickly. Like, they, like we're not even really hearing about them discussing adoption, and all of a sudden they're at the adoption nunnery place.
3: Right, and her uh, scar is pretty fresh on her stomach. Like you can infer it was in within the two years, right? Within the year or two.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a question. It was she an alcoholic as a result of losing? That's what I thought baby or does was well, she an alcoholic and then she sobered up and then they tried and then she lost the child like these are all little details that you can try to piece together. It's definitely not clear
2: but they but she does is that bad screenwriting or is that like com like deeply layered complex writing.
3: Well, I mean, Kate says we just want to give something as much love as we feel. And I think maybe that that fear of I don't want to go through that again and get pregnant. Mm-hmm. So we're going to die. I just don't know what the need is for three children. Like, oh, me neither. You, you pick that.
1: I forgot that they even had another child until Danny shows up. And I was like, oh, this fucking
3: piece (laughs) of shit. Oh, right. Poor Danny. He
2: was rough, but you feel bad for him. Dude, when she like smothers him. Wait,
1: Danny. Trace, I'm going to have to blow your mind again here, man. Okay. Danny is the Esther of this film until Esther shows up. He is a sociopath. He murders a bird. Oh, the bird. I know. And like, the, guess oh, wow. what? Yeah, you don't kill animals with like, sure, he cries, but it's only when Esther and Max actually show up like he sees a bird and he decides to murder it.
3: He decides to shoot it with his BB gun, which what do you think was going to happen, Danny?
2: It's yeah. a paintball gun. And
3: oh, oh, it was a paintball
2: gun. It's a paintball gun. Yeah. But I've never played paintball, but I heard that those things hurt really bad on humans. They do. yeah, yeah. They so, hurt really bad. Yeah, I'm sure it, like, crushed the birds, like, ribs or whatever birds have that are ribs. Yeah, like, I,
1: I firmly, my take of this film is that he is actually a secret sociopath, and that had Esther not started her reign of terror, that he would have ended up, like, becoming a killer.
3: Oh, I like that and I totally agree. Because
1: he's he's such a petulant shit when she says, And starts he's so into what his friends him, think. Yeah. Well
3: yeah, my friends are gonna make fun of me. Like, oh my god. I mean okay, that's
2: that that, that, <laughs> that, that that that's a normal thing for like a thirteen year old kid to be yeah. thinking like for a, a teenage boy, you're basically guaranteed to be a dick for a couple of years. But Oh, and when and when he said
1: she's not my fucking sister, I was like, Boo <laughs> Yeah. Way to put it out there at the dinner table, Danny. Yeah. I
3: don't know, you guys let me know if that's normal in white households, but in my <laughs> no. black-ass house, <laughs> no. I would have gotten a fork through the eyeball. My mother would have never let me even drop the F-bomb. And no. <laughs> John's so cool, he's like, that's me. That's me. I'm like, what? You're going to let him live? That's crazy. No, I,
2: I, I would have been like spanked
1: up the stairs to my oh bedroom. yeah like, like i wouldn't have even made it away from the table before i would have been grabbed and like beaten severely. but okay
2: wait so th- that's an uh, that's something that i think though is like a very like west coast way of raising I, oh fuck I, I might be walking on a minefield here because you know people take parenting very seriously but like in the south like in texas where we are and maybe it's different in canada and i don't know where you're from shoddy but like that that like oh kids kids are just like adults we have to let them have their space no 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 no. we didn't have that (laughs) growing up no
3: i'm from yeah i'm from michigan in the midwest no we don't play that either you're you're a fucking kid
2: I think
1: there's a partially a generational aspect as well, like not to not to throw my in-laws under the bus or anything, but part of my husband's extended family, they they went through a period where they were like, we have to treat our children with respect and allow them to build like adult-like capacity and responsibility so they would say you know like here's five different things which one do you want to do and the kids would get to decide and one of like the options could have been like oh do you want to have like a regular dinner or do you want to do this other thing and it was like no you're the adults you've got to like lay that out for them but i think part of it is just Like, that's so far beyond mine. Like
3: I'm turning 30 in October, and I still don't get to pick what dinner when my mom comes to visit. Like, (laughs) I don't have options. Yeah,
1: like, (laughs) you will be told the parent will make those decisions. Exactly.
3: Right. So you're absolutely spot on about Danny, yeah, because that that outburst right there, he should have been
2: dead. I did want to backtrack, though, because y'all mentioned, you know, oh, who needs three kids? Now, y'all know that when they were fucking in the kitchen, they were trying to have a fourth. (laughs)
3: <laughs> no, no, no. Were they?
2: I No, no I know I, because because the whole thing was like their marriage was in shambles, and Esther like brought them closer together. They were finally getting happy, like becoming happy again. She wants another kid. Like that, I read that as okay. Like let's let's make love, which is a phrase that I don't love. Ew. I know it's such a gross <laughs> phrase. Um, and have a fourth kid, and I'm just like, and I guess maybe we're all the wrong people to talk about that with because none of us. None well, of us have kids. Joe, I haven't talked to you about it, but do you want kids, Joe? Uh we talked about it and then we decided it was no. not a
1: good fit for us.
2: For me, I'm just a really selfish person and I can't also I can't I can't imagine like spending money on a child, much less four. <laughs> oh my
3: god what? right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Trace can barely
1: share the mic, so assume like think about <laughs> he would actually <laughs> deal with a child, right? No, we're watching Legends of Tomorrow. We are not watching Sesame Street. Exactly.
2: No, it's I mean I I have a great respect for parents and people who do have children because I yeah, I could not do it. Yeah, and I don't want to do. No, that. it's
3: it's hard. I parenting is the hardest thing in the world. It's just oh, it's the hardest sure. job in the world. I do want that. I said earlier I didn't, but not right now. I I'm only turning thirty. I still have life to live. Gotcha.
1: So <laughs> exactly.
2: oh so, sorry, I misunderstood. I thought you were like nope. The the, the the children's store is closed, but that makes more no, sense. No,
3: no. Um, yeah, I just, I'm not that kind of girl that's, like, in a rush to have the baby and the marriage and stuff. I'm, like, I'm yeah. good. I mean, Meghan Markle just had a kid at 35. I'm, I'm chilling. There you so. go.
2: Yeah. I think that might be an L.A. thing, too, though. And I don't mean to generalize, you know, all No, LA it is. Citizens, no, but... no, you're
3: right. You're That's why I left Michigan, because everyone there is barefoot and pregnant.
2: <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> like...
3: <laughs> I didn't realize how close we are, actually.
1: (laughs) I mean, the plus side is, is that you've got all of these orphanages with these nine-year-old foreign import babies that you could just go and pick up at your whim. Like, you make that decision three weeks later, you're going to have a kid fresh from Estonia. Yeah.
3: Right. And that's actually, I'm sure, I don't know if you mentioned it yet, but there were a lot of protests against this film by pro-adoption people.
2: I can imagine Well, so you. you, So y'all remember there was the line in the trailer that is in the movie, but they removed from the trailer. Um, It's when Esther's painting and she's talking to Peter Sarsgaard, and she's like, "It must be hard to love an adopted child as much as your own." And oh yeah, adoption agencies and like like pro obviously you know pro adoption people, which is you know that everyone should be pro adoption, had a huge issue with it. Now, I understand why that line is in this movie. Yeah, and also I can imagine that an adopted child might feel that way at some point, so I think it's an important way to bring it up, but because of the manner in which it's done because it's this evil bitch, yeah, it's not exactly uh, deep it's not kosher no. no,
1: but if you i mean a if you watch this movie, I think you can very clearly see that Kate and John, well, maybe not John. Kate's actually a very good mother. Most of the time, like she's actually very loving. She like she gives it a good fucking try to make it work with Esther before that little bitch basically burns the house down.
3: (laughs) Right. I mean, she tries to teach her piano, and Esther pretends like she doesn't play the piano, and then she's like playing what Bach or something. I'm trying to I'm trying
2: to remember what what is the point where Kate is realizes like oh something's wrong. Is it is it when she finds her playing the piano, or is it something before that?
1: that's really it because i think she realizes at this point this child is actively lying to me which means that i can't trust her and
2: how can you how can you love something that you don't trust mm. so okay so then how do how do y'all feel then about the way that this movie handles that cuz then you're really going into kind of a whole To make a horror movie, you have to take something that people are comfortable with, or maybe something that they're unsure about, like adopting a child, and you... You know, because there are fears. I'm sure when you're adopting a child, it's the same thing as when you're having a child. There are inherent fears there. So it's a horror movie's job to expose those fears and... Or exploit them. Exploit them, yes. (laughs) But it's like, you know, what, um, uh, Rosemary's Baby. Do people say, oh, like, that's bad for expecting mothers? Devil
3: children? Oh. (laughs) Well, I mean,
2: but saying, like, you know... The Church of Satan was actively protesting it. (laughs) But I mean, like... I'm not, I'm not, I get where the, you know, protesters of this particular storyline were coming from, but it's also like, it's a horror movie? I don't know.
1: Well, yeah, like, does anybody watch this film and say like, oh, yeah, no, I can't adopt because what if I end up adopting a 33-year-old serial killer?
3: No, it's the same thing, like, with It, like, all the clowns protested. Uh. We're not all like that. People freak out all the time about horror movies, but it, it really is just a different form of storytelling. They don't... They do it all the time and it passes, and nothing, it's never that bad. Like Orphan came out, and I think everyone could tell if you saw the movie, like it's not, it's really, you know, she's an older woman, so it's not really about adopting, it's really about other things. But, well, that's the the
1: funny thing about this film, right? Is at the end of the day, I mean, I, I joked in my plot summary that, you know, it's so enjoyable watching Vera Farmiga backhand this little girl in a public space and you're like yeah slap the shit out of her but the film like the film gets away from it because you know at this point that she's not like she's not a child she's yeah that's actually, a grown-ass woman yeah, she's a crazy bitch um she deserves which i think is it's one of the smarter things like the twist is so ridiculous and over the top i love it though but the film manages to get away with it because it says oh no it's okay to hate this person because that's not a child that's a grown-ass woman so now we can want to watch vera Farmiga like fall through a skylight on top of her and crush her or kick her in the face
2: and drown her in a pond. <laughs> Here's my question, though. So her reveal scene, which I think is great. You know, she pulls out her dentures and she has the ugliest fucking teeth. She,
3: uh, I mean, those dentures weren't anything special either. Oh, no.
2: God. <laughs> but then she also, so she has her boobs taped down. She's <laughs> wearing Spanx. Like, <laughs> Spanx. You are telling me that neither Vera Farmiga nor Peter Sarsgaard has seen this child without clothes on? Well, that's why we get that bathroom scene where she takes the bath
1: and she locks the door.
3: I know it's, it's it's the rules are different with adopted kids, right? Like, how how long do you wait till you like check out your adopted kid naked?
1: Like, yeah, you've got to respect that privacy and got respect grow that. that that relationship, right? Because that's yeah. why it's so important for Kate when she says, "Oh, I think she's finally opening up" when she first starts to like talk about the piano and all those other things. And Kate's like, "Oh." like, we can start to move it to the next
2: step where she's actually going to, like, accept me as her mother. And and that's why, I mean, again, like, we might all be the wrong people to... Not not that we're the wrong people to discuss it, but because we don't have that experience. So, I, I don't really know if we have any listeners like that either, but I know we have some parents out there. So, listeners, if you have adopted or you've considered adoption, or if you are, you know, if you have children of your own, like, biological children... What are your thoughts on this movie and kind of... Do you buy into it or is it just kind of too silly and unbelievable? I'm very curious to know about that.
3: I can buy into like the wrapping the boobs and compressing all of that stuff. It's the ribbons around the neck and the wrist that I'm like... You guys. Seriously? Well,
1: it's so funny. I remember that there were people back in 2009 when the twist came out and people were talking about it. There were a bunch of people that were really disappointed that her head didn't fall off. <laughs> what? <laughs> because it's that urban legend. I think it might even be like a scary story to tell in the dark where there's a character who ties a ribbon around their neck and it's to keep the head attached. And I was like, so you thought that she was a supernatural entity who kept
2: her head on with the rib? Okay, cool. Got it. Check. (laughs) I'm actually, because I don't remember what I thought it was. Because, I mean, again, like like we've discussed, that was the whole marketing concept of the movies. And you're like, what's the matter with Esther? Or there's something wrong with Esther. Esther's got a secret. And I mean, again, that got my ass into that fucking seat opening night. I don't remember what I thought it was, though. Like, did you walk out of the theater? Okay, wait, I want to hear this from both of you.
1: When you first saw this film, did the twist work for you? Or were you like, oh,
2: fuck, come on. No, it worked for me 100%. But, but you know how much I lean into the fantastical, ridiculous shit. So yeah, you love a good over the top reveal. I love an over the top reveal. And I love, again, I love her performance of it. Because it right. it's over the top. But also, I bought it in a realistic way.
3: It's really Isabel that carries it because you know yeah, she yeah. smears her she's eyeliner, she it. takes her teeth out, and then she's really scary as she's a really ugly woman, you know. And yeah. she makes it she makes it so believable she that for me, I was like, "This old is awesome,
1: too!" Right? She yeah. looks
3: old. Good makeup. Yeah. whoever did it.
1: Yeah, make so I did it work for you when the first time you saw it?
3: Oh, yeah. I was 19. I just moved to L.A. when I saw this movie. You yeah, were like, um, oh,
1: I've seen that girl on the street. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I am that girl. So. <laughs> no, but it's um, it was interesting because, you know, at 19 is a weird age where you kind of look like you're 14, but you are an adult and you want to be seen as adult. So I definitely connected on some little level like that. Like, yeah, everyone says I look like a 14 year old, too. I kind of get that girl. But it's really because of the actress. She pulled off that switch from sweet little girl to crazy bitch so well.
2: And that's kind of why I do like this movie a lot, though, is because even though it's fucking two hours long, it does things with children that I really wouldn't expect a like mainstream big studio film to do, even in 2009. Like, there are things in this movie that I honestly wouldn't expect some movies to do today. Yeah. Yeah. I love how much it puts those kids in danger. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and the It remake, too, when my sister and I went to see it, what, two years ago, the first thing we said was, oh my god, I'm so glad they bit that kid's arm off, <laughs> because yeah, right. they normally hide away from shots like that. Mm-hmm. Um, not in Europe. Europe doesn't care. No. But no. here we do. It's
1: a North American thing by far.
2: But I, I'm really into, like, kids in danger, because, I mean, this, the thing is, and as someone who is not a parent, I feel like in America, we are so inclined to shield our children from danger and from the horrors of the world and I, when I see them do this to child actors and I mean granted I'm not there seeing how they're doing it but like they, they know what's happening to an extent like they have to know what's going on so I just kind of like it I don't know like fucking shock the children that's actually
1: the point I was going to make a while back when I was talking about Max's they apparently just told her it was a game so I think she knew that it was acting but she was like I think it was like okay so this girl is going to like you know, push you and it's going to be funny and
2: just ignore the fact that there's going to be a car that swerves around you. <laughs> then you have to... I think that but I, again, like, if you're talking about, like, the filmmaking part of it, like, you know, you have the camera rushing at her, but I, there's not really a car going in at, no, at all. No, no, no. But, like, I think all of the
1: the really heavy content, like... You know, you, you can't expect that a child, even a child actor, is really going to be able to process that. So I think in in these cases, they're sort of like, okay, so you're going to, you know, <laughs> she, tap this person. like, what and... kind of
3: fucking game is this? <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> she grows up and yeah, people are like, so do you want to play a game? She's like, oh, who are we going to murder?
3: <laughs> like that scene where she does the Russian roulette and she's like, you want to play? And I'm like, what? Yeah. You are holding a gun at a child.
2: <laughs> that scene is off the wall. There's some suspension of disbelief here, though. So I mean, obviously, you're to believe you know Esther like intimidates her enough, and you know says, "I'm gonna kill mommy if you tell her." I, I still think that like I don't know if I fully buy into that this girl would not tell someone that to the point where when Danny was finally like opening, like, getting her to open up, I was like, "Thank fuck, thank yeah. God." That these one of the talking. few
1: scenes that we have that's not like that doesn't include an adult or Esther as well. Mm-hmm. It's like I think that's the only time that you actually see the two of them talking. You're like, yeah, you guys need to communicate more frequently because a lot right. of this shit could have been avoided if you just had a told an adult.
3: But Max is no snitch, and I can really appreciate that. This like, is true. <laughs> honestly, <laughs> I really
2: liked the scene in the grocery store though when she was having her read. Vera Farmiga's lips when she yeah. was on the phone with the, with uh, Sister Abigail. I thought that was a really well done scene. This isn't a wholly original movie. I mean, in the fucking first 15 minutes alone you have one fake mirror like bathroom oh medicine cabinet God. scare and then a real one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then later they do it again when she's
1: opening the fridge and you're like, oh Jesus Christ, are they gonna have... But like the film is savvy enough that it, it very clearly understands all of these tropes and knows how well to use them.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think Sarah is actually a very good director. I argue that House of Wax is a more enjoyable and better directed movie than this. I do, I do. But you love a slasher. I do, I do. But, and granted, that one is very dependent on special effects, but I think... I'm sure he'd learn more. Oh, because he directed a movie called The Goal 2, or Goal 2, The Dream Begins, which is like a soccer movie between the two. these two. Yes. Yeah, Goal. And maybe it's because, though, House of Wax, to me, rises above slasher conventions to become a kind of like something that's a little bit more impressive. Whereas this, whereas the screenplay is kind of impressive, I don't think there's a lot of super creative, like, directorial things on display here. Mm, I disagree
1: I with that. I can say that.
3: Okay. With... Th- I disagree, but I can see what you say, like, angles, transitions, it's not really, he's not really yeah, yeah. being creative, but the characters are so damn good, and the conversations, the scenes are, like, master class acting, one-on-one. Right, but,
2: but, yeah, right. but he didn't write the screenplay, <laughs> but he is directing his actors. You're right, you're, he, is, he is directing his actors. But you're, he's also dealing with child actors, and really good actors. I mean, this is Vera Farmiga before she's super famous, like, I mean, she'd done a couple things around this time, and I remember being kind of shocked that she did this movie, which apparently was because of the paycheck. She wanted a paycheck, and she wanted to
1: work with uh, Peter. Yeah.
3: Was it that good of a paycheck? I mean, it was an original horror film in 2009.
1: Well, I think it meant that she was in a bunch of shit that probably didn't pay very
2: well. Yeah, her her exact words were, Vera Farmiga said the film was appealing in so many ways, but largely because she, quote-unquote, got a paycheck for once. What? So she had probably worked in a bunch of
1: different things that either... She didn't get paid for at all, or it
2: was like maybe she had done things as favors for people. Well, her her, I mean, she'd been acting for eleven. She started her first acting credit that I could find was from nineteen ninety eight. But I mean, the biggest thing I I I really remember her being in was she was in well, she was in a another killer kid movie called Joshua two years before this, which I'd never seen, but that's an indie film. She was in this movie with Kate Beckinsale and David Schwimmer called Nothing But the Truth, where it was like a legal, really really fucking good movie by the way. But she's a bit part in it, like she's not. The main character so I think she had a lot of those roles and it wasn't really Uh, until something like this where she is the main character yeah where she gets real money yeah and I think up in the air is what really yes yes. yeah
3: that cemented her for sure that
2: that that cemented her as oh like this is an actress to be on the lookout for like she had a lot of small parts that she made it like really deep impressions in but up in the air is what like was like oh she's fucking phenomenal yeah
3: love her love her sister
2: I don't love her sister (laughs)
3: You don't love her sister? I what? D-
2: I think Tessa Farmiga is one of the worst actresses I've...
3: No, u- no, no, no. no. The,
2: I just watched a movie with her recently called... Um, Oh, fuck. It's, it's a Shirley Jackson adaptation. It's her and Alexander Daddario. It's like, we have always lived alone in the castle or something. And Tessa Farmiga is asked to basically show no emotion for the whole movie. And I was and like, oh my God. Performance she, it's yet. her best performance. <laughs> She's not doing anything.
3: Did you not like Nun, then? Did you not like the no, Nun? No, I don't like the Nun. Oh. oh.
2: <laughs> but I don't think the Nun rests on her.
1: No, but I'm, like. The screenplay is the problem with that, isn't the
2: it? The one that people go for is Final Girls. And I really, really, really like the Final Girls. But, but I but think not it, her. I think it would be a lot better if anyone else was in her role. Micah Monroe.
3: Oh, dang. I didn't know there was so much Tessa.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Backlash. (laughs) The Tessa drama. I sure as you don't like her in American Horror Story uh, any
3: of the seasons that she's been in.
2: She's often given these really
1: sad sack characters on American Horror Story, though.
2: But but you know what, though? It's the same with, like, I've said so many things about Micah Monroe where I was like, oh, she plays kind of the same character that is kind of this sad sack character. So when I finally saw her in Greta playing, like, this firecracker, I was like, oh, good. Like, I'm I I'm convinced now. I need Tessa Farmiga to do something like that.
1: Yeah, you need her to shake it up a little more.
2: Yeah, because she plays the exact same character. You hear that,
3: Tessa? Trace demands you shake it up.
2: Gauntlet, (laughs) throne, challenge accepted. I don't hate her. I think I just said I hate her. I don't hate Tessa Farmiga. I I haven't seen anything from her to make me think that she can't play the same character over and over and over again.
3: That's fair. Because
1: I had to deal with this when we were talking about Jaws, so let's just have it on the record. So Trace totally fucking hates her, wants her to die, (laughs) never wants to see her again.
3: (laughs) Because apparently I
2: told everyone that Joe hates Jaws when actually he just doesn't really care for it. Yeah,
3: I, girl, I agree. I still think Deep Blue Sea is the best shark movie oh, over sure. Jaws, yeah. and I will die on that hill. <laughs>
1: yeah. Be careful, Shade. When you when you get rolling with your own podcast here, like you say things and you say them flippantly and apparently then you have to answer DMs for a the lot rest of questions.
3: questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have hired a social media intern so you guys can go ahead and send all your hate mail to her because I don't, I don't read it. So. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, uh, hello, I am want.
1: a powerful woman and I will not be reading your exactly. personal responses. Literally. We
3: <laughs> literally hired a film student and she gets to filter all the stuff. She'll send me a good, a couple of good comments but I'm like, the rest, I'm like, I don't care. That's
1: amazing. Yeah, you're like, I'd like one or two positive comments for everyone. Every episode, I and think then
3: Ariana Grande does that too. Like her team will send her like some top comments of the day and that's it. Nice. That
2: wouldn't surprise me. But all right. So I feel like we're wrapping up a bit here. Are there any things about the movie that you will want to get out before we kind of go into the conclusion? I did just want to say that
1: I think that this is a very well directed film. And part of that is that I like the way that he uses aerial shots to anticipate things to come. So you see a lot of shots of like the road and the pond, and it's just kind of cueing you to let you know, hey,
2: there's going to be something important that happens at these locations later on. So. Just a heads up, he does the same thing in House of Wax, specifically in a scene when <laughs> Alicia Cuthbert is running away from uh, the, the killer. So yeah, I just wanted to point. So that he's out. got a director trademark. Fantastic. He does. I think he does. I mean, I haven't seen his Liam Neeson movies. Oh, oh which God. I think, I think Fear for Amiga's in one of them too. Yeah, I want to say nonstop, but don't quote me. Oh no, it's the commuter. No, she's in the commuter. That, that's ah. what she's in. Oh, the train one. Okay, yes, the good. train one. Yeah. So, so there's a there's a train and there's a plane and then what it's is just white people getting kidnapped and dealing with like a European villains? Well, no. So the the, com- com- <laughs> the, the commuter's a train. The uh non is a plane and unknown plane, yep. is, i don't know what unknown is but that's diane Kruger, i think and then the gray is wolves uh the gray is really good though but that's not cool Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway i was he also does aerial shots i believe in the shallows which you know as a lot of like like blake lively you know i mean rock. that, that rock. One, like you have to because literally your movie is her stranded like, on a rock if you don't
1: have aerial shots what else yeah. have you got in that movie <laughs>
2: uh Blake, Blake Lively, Blake Lively. In a
1: exactly <laughs> <laughs> but this That's way, all you need. this way you get the top down boob shot you can get
2: like the rotating <laughs> ass shot like you got to maximize your Blake Lively coverage yeah yeah for sure uh, i love Blake Lively so i will not hear anything any uh, bad language about her so unlike Tessa Farmiga, right? no, like, right. you, you, dead, very dead, dead. dead. You can rip Tessa Farmiga a new asshole for all I care. I don't care. Holy oh, um, wow! So Jesus. I, I I will I, I just I do like this movie a lot. I like it less than I did ten years ago because I do think that runtime is. I don't want to say unforgivable, but yeah, it's, well, and the, then I go to something like Scream 2, which is, like a, a, it isn't an even one. It's a tight, it's,
3: yeah, it's two, 91, right? No,
2: it is it's 120
1: too, minutes. How is
3: it? Oh, it's 120? It is no.
2: two hours. <laughs>
1: two but hours. Feel, it doesn't, I think that's the problem, is that the first part of this film is really good emotionally character-driven stuff, and then yes. the middle section, you've got, okay, she's she's bad, people are starting to figure it out, like, let's... Let's bring it together. And there's a couple of parts where it sort of stops and starts, and there's not enough
2: murder. So here's the thing. I'm gonna say right now: the 40 minute, so act one, two, and three. You know, 40, 80, 100, like 20 minutes. They work divided into three parts. The 40 minute mark is when she says, uh, Esther says, "Oh, I know that adults fuck." The 80 minute mark is when Max and Danny finally team up. So between that is your second act of 40 minutes. And now think about how. What happens between those moments? So you got Vera Farmiga being like, oh, shit, to the kids finally teaming up. I think that second act does have things you can like do. Mm-hmm.
3: But that third act, it just feels so rushed. It feels like it's it does. just blowing through...
2: It does, and the last 20 minutes are from, like, the seduction of Peter Sarsgaard to the end, and I'm, for me, I'm still like, you know what, because it, it cuts to credits as soon as, like, Vera Fermi gets out of that lake after she, you know, breaks her fucking neck. You want, like, two extra <laughs> minutes? That is a good kick, by the way. It like, is. Oh, and they was a good and they kick. show it, but yeah, I want, like, a two-minute coda. Just give me a two, you've already gotten me for 123 minutes, give me a two-minute coda.
3: But, like, what do you, right. what do you want
2: in that Closing. For her
3: to bend down and tell Max, "You're a shitty shot. I <laughs> should never have had you." how do you miss? Come on,
1: darling. We're gonna go to the we're gonna go to the the target range, and I'm gonna
2: teach you how to shoot.
3: Seriously, who shoots the ice, Max? <laughs> like it's right there.
2: Yeah, one hundred percent. So th- those are my two cents, Charlotte. Do you have anything else you want to say? Contribute.
3: I think it's great character, great layering for character building. Um, not scary, uh, just really interesting thriller, I would say. I'd say it's got some interesting, uh, anticipation builds. I
2: think, yeah. I think, Joe, you you said it was very campy earlier, right? And we didn't really hone in on the campiness of it, but it is a very... It has a lot of campy elements that I think really work in its favor. Yeah.
3: Right. But as an original horror story goes, I think it's pretty tight.
1: I give it credit for trying something different, particularly at this time, as we talked about when, like, you're not making two-hour family dramas with, like, a wonky child movies. Like, this is yeah. the day and age where Esther's breaking her arm in the vice grip. Like, that's the entire movie that's getting made in 2009 So yes. for them to be like mm, let's do something about infidelity and alcoholism and stillborn children and adoption and then just sprinkle in like a couple of these other more traditionally horrific things like right it's it's kind of a brave film and i think that's actually one of the reasons people gravitated to it on the blacklist because they said oh this is a genuinely mature kind of script and then you somehow also end up with this hilarious campy nonsense which just makes it such a fun watch i think because of isabel so Mm -hmm. which is for me why i end up like somewhere down the middle because i I don't think it's a great film. The runtime is too long. It's trying to do a lot of things. And so it's well, not always great. Your score in Letterboxd was a two and a half out of five. Yeah, I'd say it's probably closer to about a three, three and a half. But it's like there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't quite work because it's like that family melodrama is competing at times with the crazy camp. But I love the film for going there. Okay. I mean, yeah,
3: I do. Yeah, I agree, because I feel like even without Esther, you'd have a solid ass drama right there.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, and I've never seen Joshua, but apparently it is a very, very, very good creepy kid movie that's more classy than this one is. Interesting.
3: And also, not- more classic. Yeah.
1: I think of shit like The Prodigy that came out this no, year. No, no, no. Which whoa, whoa, only... whoa, whoa, whoa.
3: We're not talking. I love The Prodigy.
1: I enjoyed but it see, too. <laughs> but see, that's a film that only works because of its twist. And we're not going to yeah. spoil it because we haven't warned people. But that's a film that yeah. basically plays. Like, it gives you everything that you expect is going to happen, and then it's only when it doesn't give you that, and it gives you something completely yeah. fucking weird, in yeah. the end, that's the only time that movie comes alive.
3: Which, by the way, we're not going to spoil it, but it has, I think, one of the best intros uh, opening scenes to me for one shot, and I know you you know what shot I'm talking about.
2: I know what it is. It also has a really good graphic kill scene in the end of the movie, but again, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Uh, you, uh, okay, cool. Well... If that's it, I'm going to say, uh, before we discuss what we're going to be talking about next week, Sade, what would you like to plug?
3: Well, I want everyone to go ahead and uh, and go listen to Afro Horror. It's It's live now. When this episode premieres, it will be live on all streaming platforms. Mm-hmm. But I also, my movie Deadly Dispatch that I wrote for TV1 is premiering this Sunday, July 28th. At 8 p.m. sometime Central. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's Time to be determined, eights.
1: but check the Time
3: channel. to be determined. But check the channel and watch it if you like thrillers, especially like this orphan. Like I said, it's at the end of the day, it's a story about a woman trying to track down her best friend's killer. But it's really about her keeping her family together. Um, and there's infidelity and there's lies and there's cheating and there's murders. So please check out Deadly Dispatch on July 28th on TV1.
2: And you did, cool. uh, you let me know, too, as well, for your Afro Horror podcast. It's similar to what we're doing with queer horror, but obviously it's with um, black horror cinema. And can yeah. can you say what the first film you're covering is?
3: Yeah, we're so excited because the first film we're covering is actually uh, Deep Blue Sea with the screenwriter Wayne Powers. Yes. And it's only a few days before their 20th anniversary yeah. on the 28th. Um, We have a really great lineup this season. We have Jeff Howard uh, coming in to talk about as he's a really big fan of the faculty. So we're going to talk about that. Mm -hmm. And we just signed Edwin Hodges from The Purge. And he's going to go talk about his experience about being the black man who survives yeah. at the end of the purge. Nice.
2: Oh, yeah. I, I'm quite excited for this, because I think you'll have a lot of uh, very, very fun conversations. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yes. We're planning on keeping it fun and light. Like We know it can go really south with the politics, and also because me and my co-hosts are firm millennials, we won't be doing any movies before 1990. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, we're going to leave right. all the 80s stuff to you guys and Halloweenies and all those other cool people, <laughs> but um, we're doing 90s and up, y'all. Nice. So.
2: keep it contemporary the way to my heart well that's great so yes everyone go check that out that is out today and then uh, I guess we'll kind of move into our housekeeping our standard spiel Uh, if you want to reach us on Twitter you can reach me at Traced Thurman and I'm at B still on my remote that's the letter B if you're tweeting about the podcast, please be sure to use the hashtag HorrorQueers in your tweets. You can also email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com or check out our Facebook page. Uh, if you have two seconds, please go to iTunes and leave us a rating. We haven't had a good review in a while, so if you haven't left us a review yet, please go do that. If you want even more content, please visit our Patreon page at Patreon.com HorrorQueers where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes covering recent horror films like Midsummer and Crawl, and you'll also get a newsletter on the first of every month telling you what our schedule is for that month, so you can know the movies we cover before we announce them. But talking of announcements, Joe, what are we covering next week? All right, so we
1: are embarking into our first foray in animation, and we're going to check out 2012's Paranorman. I believe also our first family film yes yes which is why uh i've been able to invite a very special guest
2: star on who does not like horror films yeah but i've never seen this but apparently there's a gay character in it and i'm i've been wanting to see this for a very 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 long time so yeah it should be interesting yep okay well i think on that note then we can cross out orphan yes and cross out horror queers This episode was brought to you by the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, delivering your weekly horror podcast fix. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit bloodydisgusting.com backslash podcast network.